What's that sound? That's the sweet sound of bacon. I like bacon. You like bacon. I like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. You like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. So, what is this? Biblical details, historical context that puts you in the action. And with that, let's get started. Hey, good morning. It's Andy, everybody. And we're going to get right to our notes today. And just kind of catch you up real quickly is we are in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 31. And we have been wrestling with Paul's conversion. His name was Saul back then, but later on we would know him as Paul. And as we move into the notes today, this is going to be a pretty big part where we have seen Saul go to Damascus, had his big conversion on the way to Damascus, had a big light of Jesus kind of shine on him and transform him right away. He then uh, settled in Damascus for a little bit of time, went to Arabia, went back to Damascus, kind of stirred up a hornet's nest there, and now has made it down to Jerusalem to confer with the, uh, the other apostles. And so he makes his way down Jerusalem, and things aren't necessarily getting any calmer. And so when he makes his way down there, he encounters uh, not only the uh, some of the churches, but he also encounters the apostles and has to uh, just kind of work through his story with them. But today we're going to wrap up Saul's conversion experience in our message, and it's talking about uh, the reality of our stubbornness and how our stubbornness, even us as deeply religious people, can get in the way of a movement of God. And so this is what the mo- the message is called today, Strike Three, How Stubbornness Misses a Movement of God. And this is also, by the way, from Barnes's point of view. So here we go. The evening draws late as a small group of you debrief the events of the previous few days. Okay, Saul, let's take a look at what we know here. You look at Saul, then the others who have gathered with you in a circle around the table. With their nods of support, you look back at Saul. I don't think any of us doubt your your conversion at all. The Lord is truly with you, and you seem to know no fear. Saul looks at you and laughs. Guys, is this an intervention? Saul, you've made a huge impact, even in the short amount of time that you've been with us. But within only a few days of your being here in Jerusalem, you've managed to, well... You still a grin as you continue. Let's see. You have Jewish leaders from both the Hellenist camp and the Hasmonean camp who want to kill you when they get a chance. And they never agree on anything. You look at Saul to see his response. I've never seen one person tick off a bunch of guys faster than what you just have done. Calmly, Saul looks around to see the others grinning at him. He turns back to you and asks and says... Guys, where is this going? You gain the support of nods and the uh, from the others as you continue. Remember a few years ago when you stopped at nothing to find us? Then when you sought to arrest and kill us? Well, things have calmed down quite a bit here in Jerusalem since you've been away. With the Sanhedrin having more pressing matters in front of them, we've managed to live in relative peace. Okay, Saul sees where this is heading. With me stirring up the dust, I'm putting you back on the radar with the Sanhedrin. Yes, and while we understand there is a place for this, 
We also know that if we're going to have any longevity in Jerusalem, we need to function without being the object of the Sanhedrin's wrath, you explain. Personally, I love your outspokenness. Saul looks back at you. Oh, yes, at synagogue yesterday? You laugh as you remember. (laughs) I love how you walk those Hellenistic Jews through both the law and the prophets. Oh, man, they were getting angrier by the moment. But you methodically explained how Moses, Samuel, and the prophets repeatedly warned of Israel's inability to follow the law and how God provided a better solution through Jesus. Oh, hey, nice touch on calling them a bunch of stubborn snakes, by the way. The others around the table laugh as you retell the story. Those poor guys had no idea who they were up against, one of you exclaims. Laughter erupts in the room. You bring the conversation around. Yes, but did you see how they responded once the conversation ended? They talked in low voices and looked like they were scheming up a plan. Saul looks up. Seriously? James looks at Saul. You're kidding me. You didn't see that? They were scouring the courtyard to quickly find their cronies. They wanted to kill you right then and there. That's why, they ha- that's why we had to usher you out of there as fast as we could. Wow, I was caught up in the moment, I guess, Saul replies. I didn't realize that was all happening. Thanks for coming to my aid. James smiles. I suppose you didn't notice how you were being eyed by the Pharisees and the temple guards alike today? Well, not exactly, Saul replies. I guess I was so immersed in my conversations that I didn't pay much attention to my surroundings. <laughs> Within a week, you've had the entire city up in arms, another disciple exclaims. I wouldn't be surprised if all of Judea has heard of you by now, you interject. But that's what I love, though. Your assertive approach has emboldened many here in Jerusalem, just like what has happened in Damascus. So many believers are praising God because of you. Saul laughs. <laughs> I'm beginning to see a trend here. The room responds with a hearty laugh again. Well, with the fires heating up again, we need to get you out of here, Cephas chimes in. Yeah, but where do we send him? I don't know, Cephas replies, but he can't stay here any longer. The mood becomes sober. All heads nod in agreement as they look back at Saul. You look at the tired faces around the table. Look, we're all wiped out. Let's call it a night and let's talk about this further when we've gotten some rest. The next morning, you arrive back at the home where Cephas, James, and now Saul are staying. Where's Saul, you ask Cephas, who opens the door. I don't know, Cephas says while looking back into the home. I wasn't aware that he'd left. The two of you search the small home and head back out to the courtyard with similar attached homes. Saul rushes through the courtyard entrance to everyone's surprise. You see a look of urgency in his eyes. What is it, you ask? What has happened? Saul looks at you and a relieved Cephas, who now begins to situate a grain mill in front of him. I went into the temple this morning to pray. Cephas looks up at this revelation, and the two of you exchange a glance. And? Well, Saul continues, I was praying, and I fell into a trance. I'm not totally sure what happened there, but Jesus appeared in a vision, and he told me to leave Jerusalem right away. Cephas looks surprised. Wait, (laughs) you saw Jesus? Well, yeah, or at least I think I did, Saul responds. 
Yeah, he explained how I was under heavy surveillance here and that my testimony about him wouldn't be received by those here in Jerusalem. And I argued that, what? Wait, (laughs) you argued with Jesus? Cephas interrupts, dumbfounded. Indifferent to his surprise, Saul looks over at Cephas and says, Yeah, I explained how they would change their minds once they realized that I'm the guy who went from synagogue to synagogue and house to house, imprisoning and beating those who followed him. You argued with Jesus, Cephas says again in more of a statement than a question. Mildly annoyed, Saul continues, Yeah, I had to plead my case. How the Jews would change their minds because I oversaw the stoning of Stephen. Surely when they hear my story, they will believe as I do. Cephas puts his hands in his face. I can't believe you argued with Jesus. Saul shakes his head and continues. Yeah, well, Jesus told me to leave here and proclaim his story and my story to the Gentiles. The courtyard becomes quiet as Cephas rotates a small stone to grind up the wheat on the slightly curved larger stone. Cephas finally looks up and begins to think aloud. You know, I think this is all coming together for me now. Both you and Saul look over at Cephas, who readjusts the millstone in front of him. Saul, after watching you confound the Jews here in Jerusalem these past several days, I've been duly impressed by your learnedness and your capacity to clarify the place of the law and prophets in relationship to the foundational teachings that Jesus laid. You're far more educated than any of us, so like you, I thought you would best be used right here in Jerusalem. Saul nods in agreement. Okay, but that doesn't seem to line up with everything that is happening right now, does it? One thing is for sure, the Jewish leaders are not happy with you right now. You stirred up the hornet's nest here in Jerusalem just as you had in Damascus. Cephas pauses for a moment. Think about it. You yourself persecuted us for less. So why do you think your former colleagues would treat you any different? We saw the same problem when we watched Jesus confront the Jewish leaders in the temple and throughout Judea and the Galilee. You and Saul wonder where Cephas is going with this. Don't you get it? Isaiah spoke about this some 700 years ago, and Jesus laid it all out for us to understand, just as the Pharisees were plotting to kill him. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. A battered reed he will not break off. And a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will have hope. We're seeing this unfold right before our eyes, guys. Israel has rejected God's plan, so God is now making himself available to the Gentiles. Cephas gets another aha moment. You are simply building on the foundation Jesus laid. They rejected him. So why should it be any different for you? The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Cephas looks directly at you. Saul, Barnabas, don't you see it? God is creating a new pathway for you to proclaim his kingdom message to the Gentiles. 
so that the Jewish leaders who have rejected him will change their ways. The Jewish leaders have missed God's boat, and God is now using you to offer his kingdom to the Gentiles. You interrupt. Cephas, this is brilliant, but I think we're running out of time. We need to get out of here. Cephas comes out of his moment. Yes, you're right. We need to leave right away. Saul, get your things and let's be going. Okay, Saul responds. I don't have much, but I'll be right back. You look at Cephas. Where will we go? Cephas responds, I'm not just sure yet, but I think we need to get Saul not only out of Jerusalem, but far away from Judea. He then looks at Saul. You mentioned you're a Roman citizen? Yeah, Saul responds. That will do, Cephas says. Let's head towards the coast then. You'll be safer in Caesarea for now. We'll see where the Lord takes you from there. James joins in, and the four of you walk inconspicuously out of the city gates. As the road leads up a hillside which overlooks the city, Cephas turns around to take in a view of the city that continues to carry out its daily grind, oblivious to how God is moving. Oh, Jerusalem, how many times has your stubbornness led you to this fall? When will you get it? You, James, and Saul turn to take in Cephas' view. The bustling city continues on. Sighing with the heaviness of the moment, Cephas then recites, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. He who falls on this cornerstone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, listen to another story. This is Jesus speaking a parable in Matthew chapter 21, guys. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop, But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, Surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, Here comes the heir to the the estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, What do you think he will do to those farmers? The religious leaders replied, He will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to the others, who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful for us to see. Flesh this out, guys. How does a deeply religious, perhaps even stubborn community, miss out on a movement of God? Unfortunately, this happens all the time. So deeply committed to following God's law, even the highest of religious people may miss out on what the law has been given or why the law has been given in the first place. Law is put into place to warn of our tendency to serve ourselves, to cut corners, and to favor our own circumstances above others. Well, let's face it, we're a selfish bunch. 
So the law has been put in place, and while it could warn us of our shortcomings, the law could never accomplish what only God could do, and that is change our hearts. What's our problem? Well, we don't desire what God desires. Why? Well, like you, I'm all about me, and you are all about you. This is why God has given us a law to follow, but the law could never be fully followed. Why? Because I'm all about me, and you are about you. We look for loopholes, exceptions, and we're naturally inclined to see ourselves as better than we are. This is the reason for the new covenant promise found in Jeremiah 31, 31-34. I need a new heart. You need a new heart. We need hearts that are receptive to desire what God desires. The law could never change my heart. It could only show the wrong I've committed. No, a supernatural work of God would be needed to do that. So God used Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection to bring about the promised new covenant where God would permanently forgive my sin and replace my heart. Israel's problem? They missed Jesus' role as the conveyor of this new covenant promise. It was God's plan A, and there is no plan B. Because they have rejected God's plan A, they have missed out on getting new hearts. God will make the new covenant promise available to anyone who seeks after him. Ironically, Jerusalem did not seek after him, so God has opened the new covenant promises to the Gentiles and anyone who wishes to pursue him. So, we now understand, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Guys, that's it for today. I hope you have an awesome week, and here's my hope for you, that you will seek after the heart of God. And as he reveals and unveils the new covenant promise because of what Jesus did on the cross for you, now you can begin to desire what God desires. I get it. It's not going to be complete until he returns, but he has opened up the opportunity to you for you to receive the new heart that he will permanently etch into you on the day of his return. Have a wonderful week, guys, and we'll see you soon. Bye.